Illinois faces some big challenges. Today, you're about to hear a truly honest analysis of the problems we face. Equally important, you'll also hear an in-depth discussion of some practical solutions. This is your radio source for stories, the insight, and the answers you won't hear anywhere else. Not on the media, and not coming from Springfield. You're listening to Illinois Rising, presented by the Illinois Opportunity Project. Now, here's your host, AM560's Dan Proft. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Rising. Dan Proft, co-host of Chicago's Morning Answer, AM560, weekdays 5 to 9 a.m. with Amy Jacobson. Joining me, co-hosting on this edition, Joe Kaiser, producer for this very program, writer at Illinois Policy Institute. And, uh, Joe, interesting, uh, the Chicago Press Corps paying a little bit of attention to the um, outright falsehoods being promulgated by Democrats in the form of mail pieces and television commercials at the state legislative level. Uh, An interesting report by CBS2 this week on attacks against Peter Breen in Glen Ellen, Lombard area, state representative there by his challenger, which are not dissimilar to the lies that were told uh, in the primary by Jim Durkin against some challengers that we, uh, that I, in my private life, as somebody who operates a PAC, supported against his chosen candidates in the Republican primary and are now being repeated by Democrats against Republicans in the general election. Uh, and uh, CBS, too, Derek Blakely over there, took up uh, one of those said allegations. She's the Democrat running against conservative Republican state representative Peter Breen. And in her ad, Costa Howard levels this shocking charge. He stands with Republican insiders who backed a politician accused of repeatedly preying on young girls. That's false. The result of lousy reasoning. Yeah, the reasoning is because Breen received a contribution from uh, someone who also made a contribution to Roy Jones's super PAC that Breen stands with Roy Jones. That's the kind of transitive property, phony baloney logic of the left. And um, it was nice to see, you know, liberals like Derek Blakely at CBS at least have the integrity to call that out for the falsity that it is. And that's ridiculous. It's just multiple degrees of separation of, of financial support. And it, it is good to see the media starting to call uh, – Democrats out on that or whoever, even if it wasn't Democrats, because this has been going on for a while. Mike Madigan pours tons of money into legislative races. To, I, years ago, I remember Mike Madigan running ads, attack ads against himself in one district because yeah. he knows his own unpopularity. Kathleen Willis. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, this is uh, something that uh, Democrats use across races and on a multitude of issues. That's just one example. But you see a mail mailer in your mailbox saying, you know, because these are cut and paste jobs, said candidate, you know, insert name here, uh, got a contribution from somebody who made a contribution to Roy Jones. This is what they're talking about. I mean, Roy Moore, excuse me. So if you made a contribution to Roy Moore and you made a contribution to somebody else, then you're connected to Roy Moore. I mean, that this same person, interest of full disclosure, is a big supporter of my independent expenditure pack, made contributions to my pack. And if you heard my radio show in the morning, You'll know what my position on Roy Moore was during that uh, Senate, that special election for the United States Senate in Alabama. So, I mean, it is the cheapest, most misleading, most dishonest of politics to try to make those sorts of connections that don't actually exist 
And the only reason they're doing it is because of the salaciousness of saying somebody accused of being a child a predator, somebody being accused of a sexual predator, and uh, you know have the integrity to scratch below the surface, uh, like CBS Two did, frankly, and find out the truth. For uh, another such race and other such examples of what we're discussing, we're pleased to be joined by Republican State Representative candidate Dan Ugasti, who's uh, running in uh, Western Burbs, uh, the Geneva area out there in Kane County way. He's been subject to same of some of the same tactics. Uh, so let's discuss. Dan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So um, the uh, uh, falsities uh, under which uh, you've suffered at the hands of Mike Madigan's financing of your opponent uh, in uh, in your race. Give Can you give us an example that's, uh, you know, of the same sort as uh, what we were discussing with Breen a little bit east of you? Oh, sure. Sure. There, there's multiple examples. It seems like they come out weekly and they're repeated often. Um referring to me as an insider politician, saying I have, uh, I, I'll put seniors at risk. I, w- I won't stand up for women, uh, care more about campaign cash than, than I do about uh, helping people. Um, just just some of the many he, he throws out against me on top of the ones he puts out for the candidate he's supporting as well. Right, and, and wait, uh, you're a, a long-time, what did they say, long-time politician? Is that what it is? The He's calling me an insider politician. Oh, insider that, that politician. All politics for me, and I, I'm an insider when I, I've never held office before. Yeah, there you go. Why do you think, uh, Dan, Mike Madigan is putting taking so much interest in your race, which was formerly held by a Republican? He's putting over $100,000 behind your candidate. What does that say about uh, your, your district and what Mike Madigan and the Democrats think about it? Well, I, it could be a number of things. It could be the, the fact that there are probably a few more Democrats out there now or they're, they're looking to take um, see if they can uh, take advantage of an open seat. It, it's not a um, I, I, I've never held office before, so I don't have a widespread name in the district, although I have run before as a uh, candidate in the uh, primary four years ago. Um, it, it, it's something that, that he has so much money that he's able to just throw money at wh- whether or not he thinks he'll, he'll make any traction there or not. Uh, testing waters and probably just making the Republicans spend money they could otherwise use elsewhere to help different candidates. Right. Well. Yeah, your opponent's gotten about 125 grand from Madigan so far in terms of support. Uh, and um, wait a second. So if he's getting money from Madigan and Madigan's had his office beset by sexual harassment, uh, not just allegations, but um, confirmations given the disciplinary action he's taken against some of his highest-ranking lieutenants, including his former chief of staff, Tim Mapes, then by extension, by their own logic, then your opponent is being supported by uh, somebody who uh, tolerates sexual harassment in his office. I mean, to use their logic against them, that's what they're saying about uh, you and Breen and Republican candidates. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's just it's inaccurate that the very the very person who has been subjected to all this is accusing others falsely of not uh, of being guilty of this. And it, it's just it's just beyond hypocritical. The uh, it, there, there's outright lies. The uh, the issue that uh, I've been beating the drum about for some time and including in this cycle is uh property taxes. And I wonder, as you're traveling 
door to door in uh, the communities you're seeking to represent and going to events and whatnot, ta- talking to people about issues. Is that an issue that uh, is of preeminent concern to them? Is that the uh, conversation you're having over and over again? It is probably the biggest issue in the district right now, um, no matter where I am in the district. Everyone's feeling the squeeze of, of property taxes. They're, they're um, complaining they're too high. A number of people are saying they're so high, that, and, and, and there's so many other taxes in this state that they're moving. Um, and and they're, they're just not going to put up with it anymore. They're not going to tolerate it. If they aren't in the process of moving, they're making their plans to move. They're considering moving. And, and the absolute worst one was I, I was at the uh, home of an elderly woman who, who lived there alone. Very nice house, very well-kept house in a nice neighborhood. And she was telling me after we had a great conversation, seemed like I had her vote that she didn't think she'd be here but a couple more years, even though she'd lived in Illinois her whole life. She felt like she was going to have to move because she couldn't afford the taxes anymore. I think people, the people you're describing are not just frustrated with, obviously they don't like Mike Madigan, but they're also frustrated with Democrats and Republicans alike. They're, they're frustrated with Springfield in general. And there's no better example of that than uh, the state rep you'd be replacing, Steve Anderson, even though is a Republican, voted for the largest permanent income tax increase in state history how would you be different how would your leadership uh for your district be different than it was uh for with steve anderson uh as a state rep in that district well i I, i'm not voting for a tax increase i I just refuse to do it we have enough revenue in this state we we have a spending problem in the state not a revenue problem and i'm i I just wouldn't vote for it as opposed to my uh as opposed to steve who's currently holding the seat and uh, what of your opponent? Uh, where has he come down on J.B. Pritzker's call for a graduated state income tax or, you know, other tax and spend issues? Well, in addition to the fact that he's supported by Speaker Madigan, who has come out in favor of all this, he has indicated recently that, that it, it's something he'd definitely be willing to look at um, to, to increase revenue for the state. And with respect to... Um, uh, property tax relief. Uh, what is something that you would like to see done that uh, residents can kind of put their arms around beyond just the sort of the politicians' promises, as Joe was saying, from both sides about property tax relief, property tax caps, and so on and so forth. And yet, all uh, people, no matter where you are in Illinois, see as property taxes increasing, home values stagnating or decreasing as a result, and uh, no relief in sight. You know, we, we, we put out a, a four-part plan, and it basically starts with, if elected, I will not vote for the Speaker of the House, which I think would be, be a, a big help if we, we could get the Speaker out. Secondly, we need legislation, and I will put out legislation trying, starting to consolidate some of our units of government. We, we need consolidation. Illinois doesn't need the, the uh, over 7,000 units of government, the most of any state in the country. Uh, next, we, we need to start repealing unfunded mandates to make certain we're not passing any again. If, if there's something worth having in the law, the state needs to figure out how to pay for it, not shoving it down to local units of government and forcing them to raise their taxes and, and, and raise their property taxes by extension. And finally, if that does not get the relief and, and the, the uh, local units of government are, are not providing the relief the citizens need, we're, we're just going to need to, to put a hard cap in place at a low, very low percentage of a, a homeowner's, uh, a home's value. 
for the homeowners. He is Dan Ugostis, Republican candidate for state representative out uh, Kane County Way. For more information on his campaign, Ugasti, U-G-A-S-T-E, Ugasti for Illinois.com. Dan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Dan, back with Joe on this edition of Illinois Rising. And um, this week, amid the uh, Kavanaugh saga, uh, many Democrat senators responded to President Trump uh, essentially challenging the credibility of Dr. Blase Ford, the uh, main accuser of, uh, against Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, in response, let me give you a, kind of a flavor for it, Senator Kamala Harris I had this to say at the Highbrow Atlantic Ideas Conference. What would you have said to President Trump about his his mocking of that very memory at his campaign rally last night in Mississippi? Stop being mean. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Stop being mean. Hmm. You mean mean like uh, calling uh, Brett Kavanaugh a rapist? You mean mean like accosting people uh, at restaurants and other public places of accommodation? You mean mean like jumping your neighbor, Rand Paul, and uh, putting him in the hospital? Rand Paul's wife had a good piece at CNN.com this week on that. You mean uh, mean like having a Democrat congressional intern arrested for doxing Republican senators? Like that kind of mean? Or how about locally? You mean mean like vandals in Rockford uh, uh, essentially violating the Winnebago County Republican Party headquarters by uh, writing in graffiti the words rape and shame across the building with red and yellow spray paint? Is that what... Kamala Harris means by stopping me. I think she means mean by the tweets that the president puts out. I mean, you make you make good examples too, but I think uh, I, I don't know if, if those are top of mind for her versus yeah. the president's tweeting out. Right, she's probably not so concerned about uh, meanness in every direction right. or violence, frankly, in every direction. Criminal conduct in every direction. It's one thing to mock; that's not a crime. It's another thing to uh, vandalize. It's another thing to attack. Uh, it's another thing to open fire on a Republican Congressional Caucus softball practice. And that's a little bit of the environment we're in, and that's what Rand Paul's wife was talking about in the op-ed that she wrote because of the security details that are required these days for senators who are not uh, routinely and consistently attacking Trump. For more on this topic and the specific local example I provided of um, less than redeemable behavior. We're pleased to be joined by State Representative John Cabello, a Republican who represents Rockford. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So what do we know about uh, that? those acts of vandalism that were inflicted upon the Winnebago County GOP's headquarters? Well, the, the Rockford Police Department actually made an arrest uh, and charged uh, a guy, uh, 42 years old, uh, Tim uh, uh, Dam was his last name, uh, who was uh, caught uh, and admitted to uh, to doing all of the uh, spray painting. Um, you know, he lives uh, down the street from the uh, headquarters, 
apparently it just uh, uh, he didn't like having uh, uh, conservative Republicans in his neighborhood and uh, wanted to make sure that uh, uh, he had the opportunity of showing that. Um, unfortunately, he is uh, not uh, the uh, brightest person in the in the world and uh, did a uh, TV interview with uh, some of the things uh, on his shirt that he put on the building and uh, a local Walmart that uh, he bought all the spray paint from uh, uh, kind of turned him in as well by uh, saying, hey, that guy came in and bought a bunch of spray paint. So it was uh, not too difficult to put together, but... Uh, uh, it's it's just amazing what people are willing to do uh, to show outrage. Uh, what what was the reaction like uh, for your, from your constituents when they saw the vandalism? I mean, Democrats or Republicans, how did people react to seeing that happen? Well, a lot of uh, a lot of anger, really. People in disbelief that uh, somebody would be willing to go that length to uh, to show their outrage. Um, you know, it's the uh, we. <laughs> My phone blew up uh, after I posted uh, the pictures on Facebook. Um, it, uh, it achieved national uh, national news, and uh, there's plenty of people that say that they were Democrats, that they were also outraged by that, and that they apologized that uh, somebody possibly from their own party uh, would do that. So there are you know good folks still out there, which is good. Um, but then you had uh, people saying that, well, no, it was just the Republicans doing it to try to get attention. So you, know, you got the full spectrum going on. Well, yeah, so you got the full spectrum going on. But ha- had this uh, situation been reversed in terms of the uh, target of the attack and the political persuasion of the attacker, uh, every Republican in the state would be uh, would be called on to account for what occurred. And uh, I, I suspect that... Uh, most people outside of the Winnebago County area don't even know that this event occurred. Yeah. Um, like I said, it did, uh, did make some, uh, some national news, but, uh, you know, right now folks aren't uh, paying too, too close attention to, uh, what happens in Winnebago County, um, you know, where there's a, uh, a governor's race going on. And, um, you know, most people are just pretty sick and tired of uh, politics because of the politicians that uh, are in uh, office right now. Uh, people are pretty sick of, of this kind of stuff and, and politics as usual, but there are these people like the, the man in question in, in Rockford who would go to the lengths of doing this. I mean, what, what kind of factors do you think lead people to this kind of anger that we may not have seen 10, 20 years ago, but for some reason in the current political climate, we're seeing people do you know, stuff like this, vandalizing a, a Republican Party office? Well, I think it's it's getting to the point where people are taking it personally for some reason. Um, you are taking somebody other somebody's view uh, against yours as a personal attack against you. Um, you know that's not what it is. That's not the way it was supposed to be. Um, I, I don't know if it's because of you know the participation awards and everybody's a winner. Um, that's that's not the real world. I mean, there's winners and losers every day. Uh, if you want to be a winner, you got to work harder than the person that you're trying to beat. So um, I, I think that's part of the problem. Uh, but also, I think there was some, uh, you know, some definite uh, mental issues uh, or mental health issues with this uh, gentleman as well. So what are the preeminent concerns you hear from your constituents about uh, the state of uh, the region, the state of the state and uh, what they'd like to see, hope to see? Uh, even if maybe they're a bit fatalistic about it, hope to see uh, come November 6th and beyond? 
Well, luckily, um, we are not hearing anything about a blue wave. We are hearing more of uh, people wanting to vote in conservative Republicans because uh, they're tired of seeing their taxes going up and up and up and up. Um, besides folks up here talking about their property taxes being, uh, you know, the second highest in the nation, um, they're talking about now we're hearing more and more of people wanting to leave. And the more people that leave the state, the more people that stay have to pay. So we've got to find ways of getting elected officials that understand that we need to add to the tax base to make it lighter on everyone and find ways of reducing uh, the size of government. Because I firmly believe that uh, uh, government has grown beyond the consent of the government. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, the people that are elected right now don't seem to understand that or even care about that. Uh, it's interesting you say um, a blue wave uh, may not be coming, and at least in your area, people are looking for uh, actual fiscal conservatives, conservative Republicans, not those who pretend to be. Uh, how does the governor's race impact that? Because, I mean, Bruce Rauner is, according to the recent polling, is getting hammered, and it's difficult to see uh, if you don't have enthusiasm for the top of the ticket how you'll get enthusiasm at the state legislative level, and, and how much of a concern is that to you and your caucus mates? Well, I can say that uh, it's it's very well known that I did not uh, support Bruce Rauner in the uh, primary. I supported uh, the, a true conservative, Jeannie Ives. Um, and, uh, you know, she was a, she did an excellent job. She got very close of, uh, of being our uh, true conservative candidate. Um, what I'm hearing from folks here is that... Uh, even though they might not be uh, 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 motivated to go out and vote uh, in the uh, the election for the top of the ticket, they understand that there's much more at stake uh, throughout the rest of the ticket. And that's, I think, what uh, myself and other caucus members are, are trying to get people to understand. Even if you're not happy with what's at the top of the ticket, um, they don't always make the decisions. Uh, they don't always have uh, a vote to make sure that your property taxes are being reduced or at least fighting to make sure that your state income taxes don't go up or that there's a uh, uh, progressive tax coming. You know, I think they're understanding and motivated to make sure that they have the right people in place that uh, will be voting for them on a daily basis. He is State Representative John Cabello, Republican from Rockford. Uh, more information on his campaign john cabello c-a-b-e-l-l-o john cabello.com john thanks for joining us appreciate it hey thanks for having me take care stay okay. safe dan prof back with illinois rising producer joe kaiser on this edition of rising and uh joe uh the uh the van dyke trial uh, has now been put into the jury's hands their verdict forthcoming and, of course, a lot of people are concerned about uh, what may or may not happen in the city, depending on what the jury verdict is in the case. Uh, the um, Van Dyke testimony this week, particularly important, the question of whether or not he would take the stand in his own defense was answered. He did. And he had this to say about what happened that night from his perspective, starting with when he first confronted Laquan McDonald on the street. His face had no expression. His eyes were just bugging out of his head. He had just these huge white eyes just staring right through me. 
and he told Van Dyke, he told McDonald, said Van Dyke, to drop the knife. I was yelling at him, drop the knife. I yelled, I don't know how many times, but that's <clears throat> all, I, all I yelled. And did he keep advancing toward you? He never stopped. And that's an important point because essentially Van Dyke is arguing that despite what people say and what you could fairly interpret from the video, that Laquan McDonald was walking away from Van Dyke. Van Dyke's impression rolling up on the scene was that he was advancing toward Van Dyke, was McDonald, that he had a knife, and then he did this. He waved the knife from his lower right side upwards across his body towards my left shoulder. And when he did that, what did you do, officer? I shot him. And one other interesting aspect of Van Dyke's testimony was this, um, his orientation, what he thought he was doing and what was happening versus what the video shows. And it speaks to perhaps uh, his state of mind, uh, his reasonable fear, right? Because remember, we're talking about the reasonable man standard. Was it reasonable for him to use lethal force that night? Miss, I thought I was backpedaling that night. You thought you were backpedaling as you're firing shot after shot after shot? What I know now and what I thought at that time are two different things. How did you receive Van Dyke's testimony this week, well, this th past week? I think the, the idea, everything he's saying is all plausible, and I understand the argument that he might have feared for his life. But the issue, the big issue, and I think I've heard you make this point before, is the 16 shots getting into that. So even going through his whole testimony there, that could explain why, let's say, if you only shot him once or twice, that, that, that seems like a logical story, but it's the 16 shots that's the big issue of why repeatedly and over that time frame of shot one to shot 16, what was going through his mind during that? Well, you did have uh, pharmacology experts testify to the impact that the amount of PCP McDonald had in his system would have on McDonald, that he would uh, have feelings of invincibility, that he would have uh, a higher tolerance for pain, that he would be... Uh, potentially erratic and with respect to his conduct. Uh, and so there was the assertion made by expert testimony that McDonald could have taken uh, many shots before he was put down. And so potentially an argument for Van Dyke is he was shooting. Laquan McDonald wasn't going down. So he he didn't quell the threat, and that's why he kept shooting, whether he thought he was missing or McDonald was just taking more bullets than the ordinary person would who wasn't jacked up on PCP. Um, it then goes to reasonableness to continue shooting because the one or two shots versus 16 is something that uh, obviously much has been made of. Songs have been written about. Uh, so that is, that is an issue. The other issue, though, for me more so, is... Uh, he and his partner both roll up at the scene at the same time, exit the vehicle just about the same time. Uh, he makes the decision to open fire. His partner doesn't. Right. So that's that's an issue. Um, I'm not so I'm not sure I got, you know, and I hadn't watched all of it. You know, this is, it's difficult trying these cases in the media because you don't hear and see everything the jury does. I'm not sure I've heard a complete and comprehensive answer to that. However, and we talked to Gary McCarthy on this on my morning show, former police chief. You know, there is the 21-foot rule. Police are trained. You have a holstered sidearm. Somebody, an assailant has a sharp object, 
and within 21 feet is your uh, safety zone. Closer than 21 feet, then you are susceptible to being uh, uh, taken down, attacked uh, at that close range. And so his decision to pull out his gun and to open fire initially, you've got the 21-foot rule that could come into play. And then his decision to keep firing, you've got Laquan McDonald's uh, state and uh, his uh, you know, kind of initial resistance to going down when he was shot. Right. And, and you made the point just now, it, it's hard to try these cases in the media for, for citizens to do so. And that's what's going to be interesting to see this, how it plays out, because a lot of people have already made up their mind of citizens and they're ready. They're, they're bracing themselves for whatever outcome comes to be very angry or very you know, supportive of what the decision is, even though no one knows. We, no one was there that night, but people have made up their minds and they're ready to be angry no matter what the outcome is. Well, I mean, to put a fine point on that, some of these uh, postings on light posts around the city. For example, emergency notice, the murder trial of Jason Van Dyke, the pig who murdered Laquan McDonald with 16 shots is nearing its final days. When the jury announces a verdict, let's gather and burn down Jason Van Dyke's home. They, they give the address. Let's roast that pig. So there's no confusion. This is his house. They post a picture of the house in the flyer. Uh, and um, then underneath they've got a cartoon character of a pig in a police uniform, let's burn that pig. So to suggest there may be public assembly or something uh, more than that in, in, uh, in the case of an adverse jury verdict from their perspective, I think is an understatement. And so the real concern, and this is where I give actually Laquan McDonald's family uh, more credit be, than the Chicago political class, they've been calling for calm regardless of the verdict, whereas the political hacks in city government have just been bracing for riots. Uh, the Laquan McDonald family, even though they, they suffered the loss of their son, acting much more responsibly than our Chicago politicians. I guess I shouldn't see, be surprised. Dan back with Joe on this edition of Rising and uh, Joe... Uh, I don't know what your sense of it is, but there was a, another gubernatorial debate this past week. And uh, between Kavanaugh, between the Wild and Willie Chicago mayor's race with Rahm's resignation or retirement, however you want to term it, and just the, frankly, poor quality of the two major party candidates, I just don't get a sense that there's a lot of interest in this race. And I think that's why you've seen it almost not move since March in terms of the spread between Pritzker and Rahner, which has been anywhere from 13 or 14 to a high this week. One poll had it at 22. Just uh, a judgment has been passed on Rahner, and he can't seem to make his way out for reconsideration. Uh, the discussions at the debate, uh, Pritzker was on offense about what happened at that Quincy Veterans Home with respect to the outbreak of Legionnaires disease that cost the lives of so many veterans. I've been critical of Ronner on that. Uh, and Jeannie Ives was in the primary because uh, uh, we're right on the substance. Here's uh, Ronner's defense. The team determined the right time. We needed to get all the facts, make sure that there was no panic or inappropriate misinformation put out. Um, and again, what our focus was, was protecting our veterans, protecting our staff. Uh, if that was your focus, you did a terrible job. 
Yeah, and I, I so I, I watched that debate and then had to turn it off midway through because it was just too much back and forth of everyone calling the two candidates calling each other liars and going back on the offensive on their pet issues. And imagine if you were one of those undecided voters, there's like 20% of voters polled somewhere around there that are undecided, and you're watching these two guys go back and forth. Pritzker going on the offensive about, about the Quincy Veterans Home, which is a real issue, um, or Browner going on the offensive about Pritzker's property tax uh, schemes or income tax schemes. I mean, Which is a real issue, too. It is, absolutely. But just all it is is bickering back and forth, calling each other liars. And like you said, these are, there's not much enthusiasm about these two major candidates, and that's why you see... 20% undecided. You see Sam McCann, a downstate Republican, union-friendly Republican, getting 10%. Cash Jackson, libertarian, getting about 5%. You see people that aren't really interested in this race, and I think that probably ends up benefiting Pritzker because Rauner's a known quantity. But ultimately, you have people that are just dissatisfied with their choices. Yeah, I mean, Pritzker is just going to try and be more or less the jolly fat guy and, and, and not be Rauner, and that should be sufficient, particularly coming over the top and uh, with the spend that he is at, I think he's north of 140 million now. Uh, it was sort of a, a rich moment, though I got to say, when uh, Ronner had this to say about uh, J.B. Spalding. I call him. He is trying to buy political office. He's trying to buy the governorship to be something for the first time in his life. Because if he wasn't a trust fund baby, he would be nothing. He would. If he wasn't a trust fund baby, he'd be nothing. That's a fair a fair statement. Now, the, he's trying to buy the race to be something. Hmm. It's a little bit difficult to lob that charge when four years ago you came over the top and outspent Pat Quinn to two and a half to one to quote unquote buy political office the same way Pritzker is now coming over the top of you. You just ran into a guy with more money. But there's not really a difference in kind between Ronner pouring 40, 50 million dollars into his campaign. Uh, and J.B. Pritzker pouring 100 and 120 million into his campaign. I mean, it's a difference in degree, but not kind. So there's no real principle at stake here. The other thing is to be something. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Bruce Rauner has you know, built his own financial empire, if you will. So I can understand where he bristles at uh, J.B. being a trust fund kid. But let me tell you something. Um, all cliches are true, and the cliche that people with power want money and people with money want power is true in this case. And just as Pritzker just wants to wear the Mayor Quimby governor sash for the next four years and have epitaph material, Bruce Rauner, in terms of his actual performance, it was the same way. He just wanted to be liked, wanted to wear the sash. He's got governor. Now it turns out he's in the position of spending north of $100 million of a fortune that is nowhere near what JB's is to be recorded as one of the worst governors in Illinois history, uh, tracking to suffer one of the biggest landslide defeats in Illinois history. And I think it's disingenuous when you hear both these guys talking about the needs of the middle class, the needs of working people. They don't understand the state's out-migration problem. They don't understand what it's like to suffer under one of the highest property tax burdens in the country, one of the highest tax burdens in the country. And I think when we're talking about people not being interested and enthused about this race, that's got to be part of it. These two guys have no idea what it's like to, to you know, be paying 4% of, of your home value in, in property taxes. They have no idea what it's like to suffer and to look to Indiana or Wisconsin. And I think people don't see any reflection of um, 
you know, a way forward for the state in either of these guys because they, they can't relate to them at all. Yeah, they see two rich guys sort of putting on a show and, and engaged in a slap fight, slap fight with one another. It's not particularly compelling because I don't think they see it as particularly relevant to their lives, as you suggest. Although I will say, I mean, Pritzker does have an innovative approach to property tax relief. You know, I'm here advocating for a structural solution with respect to a 1% hard cap on property taxes as a percentage of value like Indiana has. But I got to say, it's pretty innovative to have a very simple plan to structurally reduce property taxes that you can sum up in one word, J.B. Pritzker's outhouses. Mm-hmm. I mean, you remove t- toilets, you re- greatly reduce the value of your property. I mean, you know, when you go to the bathroom in your outhouse, you're really going to feel that property tax relief. I- <laughs> Dan, back with Joe on this edition of Rising and Joe, since uh, civility is the uh, watchword of the day in our politics. Uh, interesting, uh, this story comes to us from our friend Ted Dabrowski, who's the president over there at wirepoints.com. He had an interaction at the local Panera in Wilmette, of all places, with uh, State Senator Daniel Biss, a socialist who ran for governor in this past primary, state senator up there on the North Shore. Sort of remarkable uh, to be accosted by uh, your state senator when you're trying to get a bread bowl of soup. Yeah, as a private citizen. Just yeah. Ted just going in for lunch. And so uh, Ted's standing there, and uh, Biss comes over with a female colleague. Ted tells the story, and he recounts it at wirepoints.com if you want to read it. And uh, he just like points out Ted Dabrowski to this female colleague. He's like, hey, you're Ted. That's Ted Dabrowski. You're Ted Dabrowski. And he's like, hi, Dan. And Dabrowski extends his hand. They shake hands. He's like, and then Biss continues to like have a conversation with the female colleague, pretending Dabrowski isn't there sort of thing. This is a terrible person. This is a really bad person, he's saying to the female. Uh, You know, we're going to destroy them. We're going to destroy them. So he sort of like has a, you know, kind of, uh, third-party public shaming of Ted Dabrowski at the Panera Bread in Wilmette, for goodness sakes. And Dabrowski just sort of was like, you know, baffled by it and just kind of stood there and took it. Somebody um, less good-natured, like me, for instance, probably wouldn't have. Well, that's one of the reasons why it's ridiculous. You and I both know Ted pretty well, and he's just a really nice guy, family guy. You would, you would never point him out as a horrible person. And on another level, it's, it's what we're kind of what we were talking about with John Cabello earlier. It's conflating having a difference of opinion, having different ideas with being a horrible person, taking it personally, which is ridiculous. What are the things that Ted advocates for? Pension reform, property tax reform. He writes about out-migration. He writes about the state's financial troubles. If Dan Biss has an issue with that, if Dan Biss thinks property taxes are too low or that we don't have a pension problem or people aren't leaving the state, he can try to debate those ideas. He can try to make arguments, but he has no argument. So then all of a sudden, Ted's a horrible person. Well, in addition to that, I mean, because of the nature of the district, I would love to, you know, I wish there would have been video of the event because I would love to show it to all of the high-minded champagne socialists on the North Shore. Is this what you mean by civility? Is this how you teach your kids to engage in conversation with people that have different ideas than them? Is this what you want to see reflected in the school districts in Evanston and Wilmette and Winnetka? Is this what we should have Nutrier students emulate, the best and the brightest? Remember, this is there's a highly educated district and a bunch of wealthy, successful people. 
Is this how you comport yourself in a professional setting? Is this how would you react if you were treated like that by your legislator? I'd love to get the answers because, you know, they're very much like Dick Durbin, the champagne socialist. They like to make payons to civility and they tolerate barbarism as long as the barbarian is of the right persuasion and the target is of the right persuasion. And I think in posing that question, you also have to ask, does do these kinds of tactics change anyone's mind? I mean, if we're really going to argue about ideas and you want to advance certain policies, are you changing anyone's mind by going into a, a restaurant and, and saying this person's a horrible person? Just a few weeks ago, too, on the national level, Ted Cruz and his wife are out to dinner in right. a D.C. restaurant and a group of protesters comes in and starts chanting, we believe women. Like, I understand their cause, but are you changing Ted Cruz's mind on Brett Kavanaugh because you interrupted his dinner? I mean, what's the end game here when you're just going in and accosting people when they're trying to live their everyday life? Well, the hope is, if there's any future for civil discourse, is that you would change some people's minds. You'd, it would boomerang on you a little bit. You change the minds of people that maybe don't agree with Ted Dabrowski's plan for pension reform, but do agree that Ted Dabrowski shouldn't be accosted by a state senator when he's in line for a sandwich or Panera Bread, for goodness sakes.